0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Amid constant conflict between Palestinians and Israelis, a lack of safe water in the Gaza Strip is causing a humanitarian crisis. It's a ticking time bomb. Should pandemic
1: disease break out in Gaza, people will start moving to the fences, and they won't be moving with stones or with rockets, they'll be moving with empty buckets. Desperately calling
0: out for clean water. Also, a new study shows compelling evidence of a relationship between eating organic foods and lower cancer rates.
2: What this study tells us is that when it comes to the risks for cancer, an organic diet makes sense. A cleaner set of ingredients, closer to nature, fewer additives, less processing is probably in general playing a role here.
0: Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A major study published in a journal of the American Medical Association has found what many people have long suspected. Eating organic food appears to reduce the risk of cancer. Among some 69,000 people tracked by French scientists over several years, those whose diets contain more organics had about 25% fewer cancers overall, with 35% fewer breast cancers in older women and a more than 70% reduction in lymphomas. This study suggests, but does not prove, that pesticides and other chemical residues in food cause cancer. But there's no reason to wait for more research when it comes to making food choices, advocates say, including the president of the Environmental Working Group, Ken Cook. Ken, welcome back to Living on Earth.
2: Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here.
0: So when this study came out, it showed strong evidence in support of the long-held belief that organic food is better for us. How do you feel now that this study is out there?
2: Well, you know, I guess I feel as if we should have been doing studies like this a long time ago. We really do need to be much more careful about the low levels of carcinogens that we still have in our diet. The fact that several cancers here did show a a marked decrease, to me, tells me that organic food is probably targeting the mechanisms that are associated with those cancers. And the other thing that's interesting, while they've speculated about pesticides There are other chemicals in non-organic food that are not allowed in organic. Certain chemical dyes, uh, certain colorings, uh, certain flavorings that simply are not allowed in organic food manufacture. That, in addition to pesticides, may be another reason why there's lower cancer rates amongst these uh, mostly women who are eating more organic food.
0: And of course, if a product is made from genetically modified organisms, it's not allowed to be labeled as organic.
2: That is true as well. And there are really uh, not very many chemicals that are allowed in organic manufactured or packaged food compared to conventional, where there are thousands. So there are lots of questions raised by this study, but to me it goes back to the basic point. A cleaner set of ingredients, closer to nature, fewer additives, less processing is probably in general playing a role here. So
0: how excited are you by this study and how much of a game changer do you think it might become?
2: Well, I find it very encouraging. It's just one study that's often said from time to time, and they're right. One study is just one study. To me, this opens the door to doing more types of analyses like this of big populations and refining even further what we know about the diet of the people that uh, are responding to the questions. What we need to do now, Steve, is we need to scale it up. We're still talking about organic with a a very small footprint on the agricultural landscape and unfortunately still a very small footprint as it were in our diet. But the other thing I, I just have to say is, you know, this does not mean that eating conventional fruits and vegetables is a bad thing. We think that's positive. The real problem we have in our diet is the processed food, the the additives. But this study adds that extra twist.
0: Now, some people are going to be surprised that you say, "Go ahead, eat conventional fruits and vegetables that have pesticides on them, because they're less of a risk than other things that we put in our bodies."
2: Yeah, that's right. But you know, if I can give my little boy a conventional apple, I'm going to give him that as opposed to uh, you know a, a pile of cookies or so or some chips. And so I think we want to move the diet, you know, lower down in the food chain to plants. A plant-based diet is desirable, but we don't have to uh, choose. We want people to think holistically about their health and their diet. And in order to do that, we have to recognize that not everyone can find or afford organic food.
0: So every year you guys uh, publish lists of foods which are, whoop kind of more worried about the pesticides and then the things that you like. Um, Yes. Mention some of those items to us now.
2: Well, sure. I mean, uh, every year we look at the data that comes out of the Department of Agriculture. They test our fruits and vegetables for pesticides. And we look at a couple of things. We look at how many pesticides and at what concentration they are in fruits and vegetables. So we come up with two lists. One is the dirty dozen. These are the fruits and vegetables that have the most pesticides on them. And if you wanna avoid pesticides, you should try and buy organic of those types of foods. Then there's the clean 15, which we started doing some years ago because we were concerned that organic wasn't always available. And we also wanna incentivize people, get them thinking positively about eating fruits and vegetables. These are things like uh, like bananas, uh, uh, certain types of squash, where the pesticide levels are extraordinarily low. They almost seem as if they're organic.
0: This study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Internal Medicine uh, talks about cancer being associated with consumption of non-organic food. Or the other way around is that the more organic you eat, the less likely you are to get cancer. From your research and studies over the years, which of these findings really resonate with what you've been told by Other scientists, in particular, the types of cancer.
2: Um, These are exactly the kinds of cancers that we would be concerned about with these exposures. And while this study focused on cancer, uh, it also made me wonder uh, the the benefits we might see or the understandings we might reach if they did a similarly large study of this sort and looked at other disease outcomes, neurological diseases, uh, ADHD, ADHD. early onset Alzheimer's, uh, any kind of uh, damage to our nervous system. We have a lot of pesticides that are in use and are in the food supply that have that particular health endpoint associated with them, while with others it is cancer. So again, I think the overarching message here is that when you look at a large population like this and you ask a lot of smart Thoughtful questions about eating habits, we emerge with a a fresh understanding of the benefits of having a diet that is clean.
0: Why haven't we seen this kind of study out of the United States, do you think?
2: I think we may see interest in doing a study such as this in the United States now. But what I will say is we we know that uh, the other side of this debate uh, in the chemical industry has not been eager to have these kinds of studies conducted and uh, simply wants to reassure everyone that whatever is in your food now uh, is safe because the government says so. And that's the backdrop here. We have science that tells us that there are sometimes very subtle, sometimes long-term effects on uh, our health from exposure to pesticides and other toxic chemicals. And because the exposure only manifests itself decades later, it's very difficult to get a a handle on those and because the government often doesn't regulate them, it leaves people thinking, well, perhaps there's not much to it after all. Studies like this break through and you suddenly realize, aha, all along our hypothesis was probably right. You put chemicals in food that even at trace levels are considered carcinogenic or could mess with our nervous system, our hormone system. Over time, it could have an effect, but you need a very powerful study to draw out those conclusions. This is one such study, and I think there may be more that follow now.
0: Ken Cook is the president of the Environmental Working Group. Ken, thanks so much. Steve, thank you. Hey, let's take a look beyond the headlines now with Peter Dykstra. He's an editor with Environmental Health News at CHN.org and DailyClimate.org. On the line now from Atlanta, Georgia. Hey there, Peter, what do you got for us today?
3: Hi, Steve. We're going to do something a little different and take a look at sports. Because okay. October is the peak season uh, for American sports, the World Series, of course. College and pro football are in the middle of their seasons, and pro basketball, pro hockey are underway. It's probably the best time to point out that some of our favorite sports teams have appropriated vanishing species as their mascots and nicknames. Uh, One of my favorites, the Wolverines of the University of Michigan, when no actual Wolverines have been spotted in the state of Michigan since the mid-1800s. These teams and colleges make millions on merchandise licensing, on television revenues, on ads and everything else. The same thing for teams named after Tigers and Timberwolves. And of course, the National Hockey League's San Jose Sharks. But my all-time favorite are the Florida Panthers, Also in the National Hockey League, 23 guys on the Panthers roster. And there were about that many real Florida Panthers in the wild in the Everglades not too long ago. But some good news, the four-legged Florida Panthers have rebounded.
0: Uh, Wait a second. I thought basketball teams rebounded.
3: Uh, Not in this analogy. But, you know, why can't most of us care about species rather than just the teams named after them?
0: Hey, what else do you have for today?
3: Oh well, a little humor because uh, climate change, as we all know, is as hilarious as it is widely covered by TV news.
0: You mean, Peter? It's neither one. Uh,
3: Well, a week ago, it was both funny and widely covered. Funny because the coverage I'm talking about was on late night comedy shows, like this one, where Trevor Noah talked about a new report that says climate change will raise the price of beer. Oh, man, they're trying so hard to get people to care about climate change, right? (laughs) No, because if you tell Americans in 10 years the Marshall Islands will be underwater, no one cares. But tell them Corona will cost more. Now they're marching in the streets. Come on! (laughs) Okay. Now we've got this one from The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Rather than talking about just how uninformed the general public is, we go to the White House where he's misinformed. And after a year of massive storms and our glaciers just shrinking in every direction, Trump was still
4: ambivalent on the concept of climate change. He told the reporter, You have scientists
5: on both sides of the issue. That is true. that is, no, that is true. There are scientists on both sides. On one side, all the scientists. On the other, <laughs> one guy who runs a blog called Real True American Science Eagle. Jesus
3: <laughs> Forecast Rapture. <laughs> So if we slap football helmets on all the wolverines and make increased storms, flooded coastlines, and all the other climate baggage more humorous, I think we'll all be okay.
0: You know, I think a lot of beer is the way many folks are going to deal with this one, Peter.
3: Well, I'll join you on that. Okay, what do you have from the history vault for us? 30 years ago, throughout the month of October 1988, we followed along with the saga of three young gray whales that were trapped in the Arctic ice. Uh, Let's review this, because it's all a little funny, too. There was a videographer for the well-funded cable TV operation on Alaska's North Slope.
0: Well, of course, with all the big oil companies there. you expect them to have the best equipment.
3: Uh, Right, and they did. The videographer happened upon three whales just offshore. His pictures prompted a worldwide frenzy. Two of the whales eventually escaped. Even the Soviet Union sent an icebreaker all the way over to help the whales. The third one disappeared and is presumed dead.
0: Uh, how is that funny, Peter?
3: Uh, well, maybe it's not funny, but it's ironic because there are an estimated 200 gray whales believed to die like this every year. But the presence of the mighty video camera made these three literally into Hollywood stars. There was a movie called Big Miracle made about all of this, starring Drew Barrymore uh, about 10 years ago. Uh,
0: yeah, because it was a whale of a story.
3: Well, h- how about we mark that cliche for extinction?
0: Fair enough, Peter. Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. We'll talk to you again real soon.
3: All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon.
0: And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. And if you have a joke about climate change, tell us about it. Write us at comments at loe.org. That's comments at loe.org. Nowhere is the seemingly endless crisis between Israelis and Palestinians more acute than the Gaza Strip, a hotly contested piece of land just 25 miles long and roughly 5 miles wide. Thousands of buildings were destroyed, and more than 2,200 Gazans were killed by Israeli forces in the 2014 war, with 71 deaths on the Israeli side. Twenty-one years ago, we sent reporter Sandy Tolan to Gaza to document the acute shortage of drinking water there. And back then, he found that 85% of wells were too contaminated for human consumption. He recently returned, and now that figure is up to 97%. Here's his report.
4: The Shati refugee camp stretches for about a mile along Gaza's Mediterranean coast. Shati means beach in Arabic, but it's hard to find a cool ocean breeze here. The 87,000 people squeezed into half a square kilometer of cement block dwellings are all refugees and their descendants. Of Gaza's nearly two million people, three out of four are refugees, families forced to flee their towns and villages during the creation of Israel in
6: 1948.
4: (laughs) Fatima Nimnim was three when her family was driven out of the village of Hamama. She doesn't remember much besides the refugee camp, where she now lives with three younger generations. They share three small rooms.
1: Welcome! We are honored
6: to meet you. May God give you help. Mm-hmm.
4: Today the entire family greets us in the front room. Nineteen members of the Nim Nim family. Most sit on the floor, backs against paint-chipped walls. They introduce themselves.
6: I'm 15. I'm 10 years old.
4: Today it's 94 degrees and really humid. It feels unbearable.
7: It's hot, suffocating. There isn't enough space to sleep. There's no space at all, can you see?
4: There's no fan because electricity in Gaza comes just four hours a day, says Fatima's son Ataf Nimnim.
5: Water and electricity? Forget about it. There isn't any. Fish. The water that comes out of the tap is way too
4: salty to drink. That's because the aquifer below our feet has been overpumped so badly that seawater is flowing in. So to quench the family's thirst, 15-year-old Mohammed Nim Nim piles plastic jugs into an old wheelchair and rolls it to the mosque, where sputtering taps provide the most basic necessity for life courtesy of Hamas. For most people in Gaza, it's not quite as dire. Two thirds of Gazans get water delivered by truck, desalinated water is pumped into rooftop tanks via hoses. But when it comes to water in Gaza, better off is only by degree. The desalinated water is unregulated, and because this water has virtually no salt, it's prone to fecal contamination, says former Palestinian Deputy Water Minister Rebhi al Sheikh. And when it
6: is stored at the uh, household water tank for more than 10 days, then this level of contamination can reach up to 70%. That's
4: 7 in 10 people basically drinking poop, or E. coli if you prefer. And in terms of parts per million, UNICEF's Gregor van Mediaza says the only
5: really safe level is zero. So already the presence of one is too much. Why? Because at the moment you have one, you actually have a potential growth, depending then how long you've got your water sitting in those tanks.
4: I caught up with Gregor as he rode out to inspect new water projects in southern Gaza. The
5: longer they are there, the more you've got then protozoa, you've got all sorts of other then little uh, animals that actually start growing in your water and it just gets worse.
4: When children drink this water, they start getting the runs.
5: So if you have repeated diarrhea, the end result is that actually your child would not grow to its full potential. You actually see children being stunted. What it also means is actually impediment in terms of brain development. You would actually have a um, measurable impact on the IQ of those children as as they grow.
4: Late last year, a British medical journal found an alarming magnitude of stunting among Gaza's children. And that's just one effect. Gaza pediatrician Mohammed Abu Samia says there are so many others.
6: In the summer day, the hospital, the pediatric hospital is very, very, very busy. Dr. Abu Samia
4: takes me through the children's ward in Al Nasser Hospital in Gaza City. He stretches out his hand, touching a baby girl hooked up to a respirator. Alone in her hospital bed, she looks even tinier. Some of these children have recently had heart surgery. The overwhelmed doctor says he's seeing a sharp rise in disease and illness in children, like gastroenteritis from the dirty water.
6: Baby suffering from dehydration, from vomiting, from diarrhea, from fever.
4: And because of the extremely high nitrate levels in the water, the doctor is seeing other effects.
6: We have children, kidneys not working now. Before, he tells me, they had 15 or
4: 20 cases at any given time. Now it's 40.
6: Every day we, I have in the hospital 10 baby in machine in hemodialysis because of renal failure, and the number increases.
4: And so are cases of something called blue baby syndrome. The high nitrate levels deprive the blood of sufficient oxygen, and so some babies look Blue.
6: Bluish lips, bluish face, bluish skin. And blood,
4: the color of chocolate.
6: I see one or two cases in the last 10 years, but now I see five cases in one year.
4: So, sharp rises in gastroenteritis, stunted growth, renal failure, and hypertension from those high nitrate levels, blue baby syndrome, and Dr. Abu Samia says. He's seeing big increases in pediatric cancer. Whether from water, the effects of three wars, he doesn't know. And beyond the lack of water, he's seeing the effects of malnutrition, which he blames on Israel's economic blockade.
6: Nutrition is very bad. It is affected baby. Before sieges, we don't have any patient with malnutrition. Now we show baby with marasmus. You know marasmus?
4: Marasmus is severe malnutrition, sometimes in newborn infants. Just skin and bone, the doctor says.
6: The last year's increasing more and more.
4: Palestinian Health Ministry data back up Dr. Abu Samia's observations. They note a doubling of severe cases of diarrhea, especially in children, and serious increases in kidney disease and in food and waterborne diseases, including hepatitis A, salmonella, and typhoid fever. The British medical journal Lancet corroborates that shortages of clean, safe water have contributed to sharp rises in diarrhea among young children in the Gaza Strip. Diarrhea is the world's second biggest killer of children under five.
6: If you really want to change the life of uh, people, you have to solve the water issue first.
4: Adnan Abu Hasna is a spokesperson for the UN Agency for Palestinian
6: Refugees, UNRWA. Otherwise, that you will see a huge collapse of everything in Gaza. Already, Gaza is
4: widely considered the world's largest open-air prison.
6: You can keep people in prison surviving and you know, giving them the minimum drops of water, you know, little electricity, little of hopes. Now I can tell you Gazans reached the level that people thinking there is no tomorrow in Gaza. We cannot dream. You are not allowed to dream because your dreams will never be achieved, will never be, you know, a reality.
4: It may seem that Gaza's torments are completely contained by layers of fences, locked gates, patrolling Israeli drones, warplanes, and international indifference. But that's not true. One example, because Gaza's power plant runs only four hours a day, its sewage plant is basically useless. So 110 million liters of raw and poorly treated sewage flow directly into the Mediterranean every day. Here, on this beach, long pipes spew brown water into the ocean just 10 miles from Gaza City.
1: They're carried by the currents and uh, north. They're responsible for closing the beaches in Gaza itself. Gidon Bromberg is director of EcoPeace Middle East, based in Tel Aviv. A, a young five-year-old boy, unfortunately, his family uh, took him uh, and the boy swallowed some water and within 10 days he was dead. A virus got to his brain. The child's name
4: was Mohammed al Sais. Bromberg says some of the misery in Gaza
1: does go beyond its borders. It's led to the closure also of beaches uh, directly on the Israeli side in Zikim. Authorities even had to close an Israeli
4: desalination plant for a time because who wants to try to desalinate water with poop in it? Israelis, Bromberg says need to wake up to the unfolding
1: humanitarian
4: disaster in Gaza.
1: It's a ticking time bomb. We have a situation where two million people no longer have access to potable groundwater. When people are drinking unhealthy water, then uh, disease is a direct consequence. Should disease, should pandemic disease break out in Gaza, people will simply start moving to the fences of Israel and Egypt and they won't be moving with uh, stones or with rockets, they'll be moving with empty buckets, desperately uh, calling out for clean water.
4: Assigning blame for the plight of Gazans is not exactly simple. Take the fact that 3% of Gaza's drinking water wells are actually drinkable. Is that because Gaza's citrus farmers pump too much? Or because Israeli agricultural settlers depleted a deep pocket of fresh water before they left Gaza in 2005? Or the simple fact that Gaza's population quadrupled in a matter of weeks when towns and villages fell to Israel in 1948? And how about the food and waterborne diseases? That's in part because the power is shut off for 20 hours a day Do we blame Israel and Egypt for withholding fuel deliveries or Israel for bombing water and sewage infrastructure in Gaza during the 2014 war or the fight between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, which deprives Gazans of critical medicines. And what about Israel's economic blockade of Gaza, which human rights groups say contributes to worsening poverty, skyrocketing unemployment and child malnutrition, a peace deal, could have connected Gaza to the West Bank, where the vast mountain aquifer is big enough to end Gaza's water crisis. As it is, there is no peace, the two Palestinian territories are splintered, and Israel has effective control over the water. Critics say Israel could solve the whole problem by simply building big water and power lines into Gaza, but Israeli officials say they are already sending water to Gaza, and to do more would be rewarding Gaza's bad actors. My name is Uri Shor. I'm the spokesperson for the Israeli Water Authority. What's uh, going in Gaza is a real catastrophe.
6: The situation there is unbearable, but it's also frustrating, at least from our point of view, because uh, it's a bit difficult to help someone that uh, doesn't want to help himself. The problem in Gaza is really that the Hamas people do nothing in order to try
4: even to solve the problem. Now, the obligation of Israel in this agreement that we have to provide a certain amount of water to Gaza, Israel is providing more than twice the amount that we are obliged by this agreement. That amount is just a fraction of the clean water Gazans need every day. And so the situation in Gaza continues to deteriorate. Humanitarian groups estimate that Gaza will become uninhabitable by 2020, barely a year from now. To avoid that, international relief agencies and the Palestinian Water Authority are working on a network of big sewage and desalination plants.
6: So this this is the feed water from the storage tank.
4: This is we Kamal abu Muammar, yeah. manager of the South Gaza desalination plant. plant. It's a small first step Eventually, there would be a few more, along with big sewage plants, $500 million in all, funded by international donors. But my visit doesn't inspire confidence. It's quiet here. We can hear the birds chirping in the rafters above the idle plant floor. So this plant requires a lot of electricity. Yeah, And sure. you don't have more than four hours a day these days.
6: And this time we don't have what we hope the ministers say they will solve this problem, but we don't know when or how.
4: Basically, the half-billion-dollar plan relies on two things that Gazans haven't had in a long time. Reliable power and guarantees from Israel that it won't bomb these plants in the next war. The Israeli can do anything uh, she wants. Mazen al-Binna of the Hamas government's Water
6: Authority. Nobody can tell Israel that you are uh, doing the the wrong thing. Even Israel doing everything against the international law, but nobody can, uh, mean, prevent Israel doing the thing she wants to do.
4: It's true that Israeli warplanes have bombed the Gaza power plant repeatedly in recent years, along with other critical infrastructure. Yet an internal Israeli army document promoting the desalination plan suggests Israel would be on board. But there's no official word, and an Israeli army spokesman would not return more than a dozen calls from living on Earth. So I put the question to Gregor von Mediaza, the water expert from UNICEF.
5: Isn't that a risk? Any infrastructure is a risk in a context like Gaza, but then The question then obviously is, what are the other options? Really, what is the way forward? If we actually don't plan, that would basically then say, we come to a standstill. And of course we cannot come to a standstill because we have two million people in the Gaza Strip that require and deserve better services.
4: On a dusky summer night, on a stony spit of land in the middle of Gaza Harbor, Five of those two million people try to enjoy a few minutes of peace. All around Ahmad and Rana Dili and their three young children, the harbor ripples with life. Fishermen hauling up their nets, kids posing for selfies on broken concrete blocks and rebar, remnants of an old bombing raid. Ahmad and Rana invite me to join them under the beach umbrella. We sit in plastic chairs. Rana pours us mango soda. With a smile, Ahmad insists I sample some chocolate wafers. Their three young children, eye me, shyly, nibbling on chips. The Dillies have the same problems as many Gaza families. Ahmad's a money changer. An Israeli missile destroyed his shop in 2014. He rebuilt it. And like most Gazans, they have to contend with the salty water from the taps and the inherent risks of disease from the trucked water they rely on. But these problems mean little to them compared to their wish to feel safe and to enjoy fleeting moments like this of living as a normal family.
5: I want just to change something for my family and my kids. I want to do something, to get them to see something different. I'm looking for my family just to feel safe.
4: In the distance, We hear an explosion. Ahmad pauses for a short moment, then ignores it. He says, I come here just to forget everything. For Living on Earth, I'm Sandy Tolan in the Gaza Strip.
0: Coming up, the necessity defense for climate civil disobedience. That's just ahead on Living on Earth.
8: Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. On October 11th of 2016, climate activists Emily Johnston and Annette Clapstein took bolt cutters to chains on two Enbridge pipelines in northern Minnesota. Then they turned emergency shutoff valves for lines 4 and 67.
7: Line 67 is shut down.
0: The two women and three other so-called valve turners temporarily stopped the flow of most of the oil coming from Canada's tar sands that day. A protester who acted in North Dakota spent months in prison, and the pair who acted in Minnesota also faced felony charges. Ms. Johnston, an editor and poet, and Ms. Clapstein, a retired attorney, were charged with damaging the Enbridge pipelines and prepared to mount a climate necessity defense. But on October 9th, in the middle of their trial, a Minnesota judge abruptly acquitted them of all charges, and they join me now from Seattle, Washington. Welcome to Living on Earth.
7: Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve.
0: How does it feel to have these felony charges thrown out? Annette?
7: I
9: think we all have mixed feelings about that. I've been feeling giddy with, you know, happiness that we are not going to jail and, quite frankly, that I'm off bail and may have the opportunity to do civil disobedience again because I had to be very careful while out on bail because if I got arrested, it could be revoked and I could spend all of my time in the Clearwater County Jail waiting trial. But, um, you know, we're disappointed that we did not get to put on the climate necessity defense that we wanted to with, you know, the very well-respected experts that we had lined up to testify for us, like Dr. James Hansen, you know, former climate scientist from NASA, and Bill McKibben. So, it's a mixed bag. Emily?
7: Yeah, I'll I'll go being stronger about it than that and say that, you know, I was really heartbroken, not so much by the acquittal, of course, which is a good thing. It was the sort of second best scenario we could have had. But by the uh, denial of our expert witness testimony on climate change and on civil disobedience, you know, it would have been the dream trial. It could have made a really big difference. So the thought that this kind of trial might happen in, in that courtroom in front of those jurors and that might make set a precedent that would really have an impact nationally on the climate change debate seemed like a really important thing to me. And of course, until four days before trial began, it looked very much like it was going to happen. So, you know, it's it's a real shame that, that it did not.
0: Now, as I understand it, you had asked the judge to let you use the necessity defense.
7: Yes. And he had granted that to us back in October of 2017. And in fact, he'd had copies of our expert witness list for for about the last year and a half. So at any point in that time period, he could have constrained us, constrained the number of witnesses, said, you can't talk about this or that. And he chose not to. So the fact that he did that four days before trial began was stunning. Uh, the lawyers couldn't have been more surprised. We couldn't have been more surprised. Until that moment, he'd been very, very reasonable, and it seemed like all systems were go. And to be clear, the thing about that that was so striking, apart from its suddenness, was the fact that, normally speaking, defendants do not have any burden of proof. It's, it's the prosecution that has a burden of proof normally. But because we were going to use a necessity defense and say that what we did, you know, was essentially, um, you know, necessary under these circumstances that we find ourselves in to prevent the greater harm of climate change, we did have the burden of proof. And all of a sudden, he knocked out our ability to defend ourselves, essentially, because who was going to listen to a poet, a retired lawyer, and a software engineer from Seattle on climate change? You know, we are not scientists. We have no authority. So no matter how articulate we had been, it wouldn't have had anything like the same impact as the former head of the NASA Goddard Space Center talking about climate change and how urgent it is, or about Minnesota scientists talking about how urgent it is and how much is already changing in Minnesota. So, you know, again, we had no ability to defend ourselves without experts to testify to those things.
0: And the software engineer your co-defendant was?
9: That was Ben Joldersma, a young father of three who was our support person. Our support people were all arrested. They went in knowing that that was a possibility, but it was certainly our hope when we were planning the action that they would not be arrested. So we're very, very happy that he's acquitted and home with his young family.
7: We're happy that he's acquitted, but I personally am very sorry he didn't get to testify. You know, in the necessity defense hearing uh, in August a year ago, when he testified, there was not a dry eye in the room.
9: Yeah, he talked about his young children and what they were facing. And then the
0: case becomes even more confusing, I guess, because the judge says, on the one hand, you can't have witnesses to make your case, and then he proceeds to go ahead to acquit you of the charges.
9: Right. That was after the prosecutor had presented his case, which was only two witnesses, the sheriff who arrested us and a local Embridge employee. And all he proved was that we had broken some chains that were holding the lock into the enclosure where the emergency shutoff valve was. And we never disputed that. So we were charged under a statute, which was one of the sort of enhanced penalty statutes that are being shoved through state legislatures right now by the fossil fuel industry to give them, you know, further penalties against protesters. And the statute we were charged under was specifically damage to pipelines. And the judge ruled, and he was correct, that the prosecutor had not proved that we had damaged a pipeline in any way.
7: Yeah. And the, I mean, he was essentially, he was ruling that there wasn't evidence for a reasonable jury to convict us, basically. Right. Uh, that as a because, matter of law. And that was because, of course, we hadn't damaged the pipeline. Right.
0: I'm going to ask you to speculate a bit, both of you, Annette and Emily, about Judge Robert Tiffany and the decisions that he made in your case. How do you think the judiciary might have been influenced by outside forces, uh, politics, sentiment? the fossil fuel industry.
7: This is Emily. In terms of, you know, what kind of pressures he may have been under or what he may have been um, thinking, you know, whether his mind might have changed about what kind of precedent he wanted to set and so forth, you know, it's, it's impossible to know and, and it's, you know, distressing and it's certainly something we've been wondering about. He seems like a very reasonable guy. He gave us the necessity defense. He wanted to hear what we had to say and he wanted to let the jury hear it. So, you know, the about face was quite extreme.
9: We know for sure that Enbridge provides something like two-thirds of the budget of that county. So, you know, they obviously have some influence, direct or indirect. We don't know. I mean, we have no way to know what may or may not have happened behind the scenes. But the fossil fuel companies have terrible amounts of influence and power in this country. And, you know, that's why we have to fight them in the ways that we have to fight them, because they do own and control our political system on on all levels.
0: To what extent did you understand when you did this direct action that law enforcement could bring felony charges against you? Annette?
9: We absolutely knew that that was not only a possibility, but a strong probability. And we accepted that risk. I... Personally feel I'm 66 years old and I feel that it is my job as an elder and it is my job because I am an old white woman who has the privilege of not having the cops show up and shoot me on sight if I do something like that that it really is my job to step up and do these kinds of things. I know from my, you know, young activist of color friends that it's far more risky for them. It's far more risky just with the police showing up that, you know, they can be in danger of their lives. And we know that the criminal justice system is far more likely to treat them harshly. We can look right now at what is going on with the prosecutions of Indigenous folks who stood up at Standing Rock and often were arrested for no more than standing in prayer and yet are getting felony convictions right now and getting very harsh sentences. So, you know, I have been saying this for the past two years as I go around the country. I implore older white folks to show up and stand up. And do these kinds of actions. This is for your grandchildren. It's for all future generations. And you're in a good position to be able to do that and have lesser consequences.
0: Now, some would say, why to go to the trouble of shutting off a pipeline and risking all this prison time when obviously that only stopped the flow of oil for a few hours at most?
7: Yeah, the civil disobedience um, doesn't work in- immediately like that. It's not like, you know, you turn off the pipeline and you really expect they're going to keep it off forever and ever because you were so brave. Um, but, you know, the thing is, you know, when people step up and do something like that and take that kind of risk, it makes other people, for one thing, listen to us in a different way. You know, if we're just held holding protests and just writing letters and making phone calls, It's pretty easy for folks to shut down and and not pay attention. But when you've been willing to take a lot of legal risk onto yourself, they do tend to stop and say, hey, why would you do such a crazy thing? And, And that gives you a chance to tell them why you would do such a crazy thing. So that's part of it. And then the other part of it also, honestly, is... Like when you do something like that, and there were five of us, and we managed to shut off the equivalent of 15% of the US daily oil use that day with nothing more than a pair of bolt cutters uh, and some research. And when you do something like that, you make it clear to people that those companies need our implicit consent in order to operate. They have millions of miles of pipeline, they have oil trains coming through all of our communities. We know that if we let them continue on with business as usual, they are destroying the world as we know it, quite literally. If we can step up and stop that, you know, whether it's chaining ourselves in governor's offices, you know, whether it is, you know, swarming onto sites where they're trying to build new infrastructure, like we saw at Standing Rock, you know, whether it's shutting off pipelines or blockading oil trains, there are numerous ways that people can stand up and make a real difference and make it clear that we are not going to go down without a fight.
0: Emily and Annette. When one thinks civil disobedience in this country, one thinks Henry David Thoreau, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, To what extent do you feel connected to those efforts in the past?
9: Very much so. I mean, you know, when you have unjust laws or unjust policies, you sometimes have to break laws, you know, in order to call the attention you need to get things changed. There's often this idea that, you know, it's a bad thing to break law. But I can say as a former lawyer that just because something is legal does not mean it is moral. There have been many, many laws in the past that have been totally immoral, slavery being a, a good example.
7: This is Emily. I was going to say also, you know, I mean, I read on civil disobedience when I was a kid and certainly read about Martin Luther King and Gandhi and, and figures like that. And I do feel that that's an incredibly important example and tradition. The other thing I think about with regard to climate change, more recently, I've been thinking a little bit about people like Raoul Wallenberg, the Swedish diplomat who saved many thousands of Jews during uh, World War II. And in a way, the climate change fight has a lot in common with that because, you know, so many people get overwhelmed and think, well, there's catastrophe coming. I can't do anything about it. But you just get up every day and you do the best you can and you save what you can save. And there's still quite a lot that we can save. And so, like, can we save life as we know it? Probably not. Can we save everybody? Oh, definitely not. We already have failed to do that. But we can get up every day and we can save a tremendous amount. And we have a lot of power that way. And it's power we need to utilize.
0: I was going to ask you, Annette, uh, obviously you're concerned enough about climate to risk spending time in prison, What keeps you from total despair?
9: There are days when it is total despair, but I feel I have no option but to continue to fight for what there is still to fight for. And, you know, as Emily says, it's, you know, it's not absolute. Anything we can save is worth saving. And I often say, you know, what are my alternatives? Am I just going to sit home and watch TV and wait for the world to end? I absolutely am not. So at worst, I can go down fighting with the best people I know, and that is worth doing. I remember that Alice Walker said, resistance is the secret of joy, and I have found that to be absolutely true. When you exercise your power and do everything that you can to stop a great evil, it is a joyful thing.
0: Emily Johnston is a poet, and Annette Clapstein is a retired attorney, and they are two of the five valve turners. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today.
7: Thank Thank you, Steve. Thanks
9: for having us
0: the valve turners chose to get arrested to make their case that climate change is more of a crime than acts of civil disobedience against it. And without getting arrested, 21 young people are challenging in court the government's role in global warming emissions. Their lawsuit, known as Juliana versus the United States, was set to go on trial in Oregon on October 29th, but on October 19th, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts abruptly halted the case at the request of the Trump administration. As we prepared this broadcast, it was unclear if this is merely a delay or if the High Court will move to dismiss the case altogether before evidence is taken. It's the season of Halloween and the Day of the Dead, and that might have people thinking about ghosts and goblins. But for Bird Notes' Mary McCann, it's the season for owls. And far from spooky, the tiny saw owl is just eight and a half inches long and weighs less than a stick of butter.
8: This past summer, a man trying to sleep got really annoyed with his neighbor on the other side of the woods, who he thought kept backing up a big truck. The next day he grumbled, What were you doing? You kept me up most of the night. Oh, you must have heard the saw-wet owl, the neighbor said. Named for what, to some, sounds like a saw being sharpened on a stone, northern saw-wet owls are common in forests across southern Canada and the northern U.S. At this time of year, many move southward, making a large concentration, especially in the region of the Great Lakes. To our ear... The advertising call of the male, made mostly in spring and summer, sounds awfully repetitive. But researchers think female sawwets hear variety. See if you can. Here are two males. Listen carefully to the pacing of their hoots. Here's the first. Here's the second. Some give a prelude to their advertising call. In the fall, the birds make a skew call. And here's a Twitter call with a snap of the bill. Quite a variety for one of North America's smallest owls, the northern sawwet. I'm Mary McCann.
0: For photos of the adorable sawwet owl, head on over to our website. It's a hoot. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Basco, Thurston Briscoe, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Liz Malloy, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Sarah Rappaport, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Special thanks this week to Valve Turner documentarian Steve Lipte. Allison Liererstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, iTunes, and Google Play. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
8: Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, Supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy.
1: PRI Public Radio International